Thanks, uh, Eric. Good morning again, everybody. We'll be in Matthew 26 today, so you can pull out your Bible or your app. There should be a Bible underneath the seat in front of you if you don't have one, as we uh, continue to consider together what the Scriptures teach, in particular the book of Matthew teaches about uh, the church. This morning we're going to consider the topic of communion, or what's sometimes called the Lord's Supper. And at the close of this message, we will invite those of you who have trusted Christ and are members of a church to take part together in what's called the bread and cup, as we remember the broken body and the shed blood of Christ. It's going to be a sweet time together as we reflect upon his sacrificial death on our behalf. But what does that have to do with the church. Perhaps if you've taken the Lord's Supper in the past, you have been oriented around thinking of it as something that's about Jesus and you. But in actuality, what we'll see today as we look at the Scriptures together is that this reminder the Lord has given us is about more than Jesus and you. It's about Jesus and us. So I want to try to lay that out for us together. The Lord's Supper has everything to do with the people of God gathered together and renewed by the broken body and blood of Christ. It recommits us to Jesus and to each other. Now, by way of example, let me show you a passage that will be on the screens from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're jumping in midway through an argument in which Paul is writing to a church that has uh, celebrated someone living in significant, known, unrepentant, public sin. And so in essence, this person's saying with their mouth, I love God, I trust Jesus. And yet by their lifestyle, they're demonstrating that that may not be true. But the majority of the chapter isn't about that person in sin. It's about the church, the church who had allowed this person to continue living a hypocritical life, unchecked. And Paul's going to use the the metaphor of uh, leaven in order to say one person in a group can, in fact, ruin the whole group. So here's what he says. Look at verse 6 on the screen behind me. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the festival, meaning this festival of the Lord's Supper or communion or Eucharist. Not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. In other words, Paul's saying, Church, it's your responsibility as a group of people when you come together to remember the death of Christ for you, to take care of making sure as a body that you're prepared and that there's not one who has been living in chronic, long-term, unrepentant, serious, public sin, who's saying with his lips, I love Christ, but then with Lifestyle is denying that. 
Now, in the next paragraph, Paul turns up the volume, the intensity, quite a bit. He says in verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter, so apparently he had written prior to this, not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy or the swindlers or the adulterers, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. Now what's the eating being talked about? Is that don't go to Chick-fil-A with somebody who's living in chronic, hardened, unrepentant sin. No. It's meaning don't observe the bread in the cup. If there is substantial sin in our midst. It's interesting that many times Christians and churches will be very quick to judge people outside the church, people who are not saved by Christ and have no power to live the Christian life, therefore, while will be very reticent to do the work of helping each other when we fall into sin. Paul, in the book of 1 Corinthians, turns that on its head. He says, why would we expect the world to act differently than the world? But the church, the church should be different. Not because we are better, but because by the grace of Christ we've been forgiven and are learning now to live in light of that. You see, Paul was immensely concerned with who takes the Lord's Supper and what the attitude of the church together is as we take it and what our attitude towards one another is reflective of as we observe the bread and the cup. Now, a great question to ask is why? Where did all this come from? How is it that 1 Corinthians ended up in the Scriptures? Where did Paul get these ideas? Why did he write with such directness on this particular issue? Well, we can't answer those questions without looking at the origin of the Lord's Supper. That's what Matthew 26, verses 17 to 29 is about. This is the beginning of the Lord's Supper from the very lips of Jesus. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Christ, you've come on a wonderful day because what we want to do today is try to describe, illustrate, explain what is in fact the most essential message of every single church, and that's the message of Christ, of the gospel, as we Christians call it, the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, before we read Matthew 26, we have another issue to grapple with. So if you look at 1 Corinthians and you ask, where did this come from? Then we see it's pointing back to the event in Matthew 26. But when we read Matthew 26, we also find a lot of other questions coming up. And we've got to ask, where did this come from? And so by way of 
slight deviation from what we would normally do together on a Sunday morning, I want to try to give you an overview of literally the entire Bible. You see, what takes place in Matthew 26 is actually the fulfillment of something that happened in the book of Exodus, the second book in the Bible. Now, for those of you who are uh, believers and have spent time in the Scriptures, these are no doubt stories you're familiar with. And yet, I would encourage you to resist the temptation to check out, to catch up on the sleep you missed last night, and instead to hear afresh and anew what God has done, because it's still what God is doing today. And if you're unfamiliar with these stories, may they, in fact, enrich, encourage, and explain to you what the biblical story is all about. So I'm going to give you the single longest sermon introduction I have ever given, and then the end will be very short. The the second book in the Bible is a book called Exodus. It opens with a group of people called the Israelites living in a place called Egypt. It's the same place today we call Egypt. There is, in many ways, nothing new under the sun. Prior to the book of Exodus is the book of Genesis, and 400 years before the opening story in the book of Exodus, we find that the people of God were in a stage, in a season of difficulty. They had been living in a place that we now call Israel. There's nothing more than essentially a large extended family. But a famine came upon the land. And it was very different than if we have times of famine today, at least in the States. You see, in this part of the world, if there was no rain, then that meant there was no food because you didn't go to fries or sprouts to buy your next meal. Instead, you grew it. And so things would die. And a famine came upon this particular area of the world. And so this large extended family, the family of Jacob, traveled down to Egypt. And providentially, Jacob's youngest son, a man named Joseph, was there. And he had through a shocking series of events, become a person of power, a person of influence. And in his great kindness, he helped his family. And as the story unfolds in the book of Exodus, things are very, very good for the people of Israel. They had everything they needed. They went from being foreigners to, in many ways, being an accepted, normal Now, this is a bit of a tangent, but friends, that's how a nation ought to treat refugees. They ought to be embraced. They ought to be welcomed. They ought to not be a they. They should have the same access to everything else that everybody else has access to. We ought not rip their kids from them at the border. We ought to treat them with the kindness that we've been treated by God. But back to our topic. These Israelites, as we would call them today, have been welcomed and embraced 
They have everything they need. They have safety. They have food. They have water. They can go to Harkins Theater. They enjoy Dutch Brothers. Life is good. But then, seemingly overnight, the tables turn. The Pharaoh who had been favorable to the Israelites died, and a new one came to power. And as always happens when a leader is insecure and paranoid, the reins begin to be tightened. And that's exactly what this Pharaoh did. Exodus chapter 1 verse 9 says, And he, this is the new Pharaoh, said to the people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities of Pithom and Ramses. Comfortability in Egypt was now over. It was gone. From a normal people to ethnic slaves overnight. It's truly one of the most horrible stories in the scriptures. Egyptians became ruthless you're a teenager in the room, imagining being, imagine being a teenager at this time. You'd gone from the freedom to do what you liked to waking up the next day to the beating on your door of a soldier. That soldier taking you and you being forced to make bricks and make more bricks and make more bricks. No friends, no social, no school. Imagine being a mother of a newborn. You had carried this child inside of you. It was the only time in your life you didn't care you were getting bigger. And as that baby moved, you couldn't help but find yourself dreaming of holding her, of seeing her walk, of teaching her how to read, of eventually marrying her off to a good, godly man. But in a moment, you are now a slave. And so all those things you dreamed for your daughter have been demolished against the cold, hard reality of servanthood, of slavery. Friends, the the physical slavery of the Israelites in the book of Exodus is always portrayed throughout the whole biblical story as indicative or illustrative of a far deeper slavery of a slavery to sin. You sneeze like a duck. That was wonderful. Don't hold it in. Just let it rip. Quack, quack. 
Let me say that again. Not that part. The, the physical slavery of the Israelites is used in the Bible to help us understand spiritual slavery. Now, maybe an example would help. One of the most prevalent pro- problems in our society today is how easily accessible pornography is. It is literally in our pockets and in our purses. Now, don't misunderstand me. There has always been sexual sin. Men and women have always lusted for one another. We are a broken people sexually. And yet never before has it been so easy to find yourself inundated with things that ought not be viewed. Life is complicated, it's stressful, it's taxing, at times it's overwhelming. Friends, we work hard and people don't appreciate us. We write good papers and we get marked down. We do things for other people and they don't care. They don't notice. We do all we can to get a leg up financially only to get another bill we weren't expecting. And so there is an ever-present temptation to look for a way of escape. And for many, pornography is that way of escape. When you view porn, there's instant gratification. There's immediate euphoria. That sense of my life has no control is suddenly gone because you might start on a sports page, but there's a little ad at the bottom. And that ad isn't all that bad, but it can lead you to another jump and another jump. And then before you know it, you're literally watching other people having sex. And it's portrayed in such a way that it looks real and like everything you wish you had. And disgustingly, like you would sit in a restaurant with a menu, choosing what you want, you can do that with pornography. And what began as just an every now and then thing to feel some sense of control, you wake up one day and realize, I have given myself over to this. I am, in fact, its slave. What gave me a sense of control has now, in fact, controlled me. Friends, that's how sin works. And don't think that, ooh, I I don't do that one, therefore I'm immune. Brothers and sisters, that's how every sin works. You know the old saying your mother expressed to you, if I give you an inch, you're going to ask for a... That's what sin does, except it doesn't ask. It demands. And so we give it a little bit of room, and then before we know it, we have been overtaken. Friends, doing what God says we must not do, sin, leads to slavery. 
Sin is a liar. It promises freedom, control, joy. But like a shot of adrenaline, it only lasts a few moments. And then we're left with the crash. What the Israelites experienced physically in Egypt is designed by God in the Scriptures to help us understand what we experience when we give ourselves over to sin. You see, like the Israelites needed physical rescue from Egypt, we too need rescue. But not rescue merely from making bricks, but rescue from the certain eternal condemnation of God. You see, that Israelite slavery ended when they died. But spiritual slavery doesn't end when we die. The consequences of it are ours for eternity. This is the biblical story of what happens as we give ourselves over to things other than God, as we worship things the Creator has made instead of the Creator Himself. Now, we'll see in a few minutes that the Lord's Supper, the Bread and cup are designed by God to be the very tool that the church, the people of God use to help us remember the seriousness of sin. And if we've fallen back into it again, even though we've been freed, to repent and return to right standing with God. This is the the tool in the tool chest the Lord has given us to keep the gospel fresh. But we need to finish the story first. You see, we don't have time to go into all of the details. I'd encourage you sometime this week, take an hour, hour and a half, and read through the book of Exodus. If you don't have a Bible, take one in the seat in front of you. It's the second book in the Bible. It's a magnificent story. Get together with another person or two and take turns reading it out loud and imagine these real life events. Place yourself in the story because in a spiritual way, you in fact are there. You too have known or may still know slavery. Again, not bricks and Egyptians, but whatever the poison you've chosen to drink is. It might not be pornography. It might be something that looks far less evil, like doing good, right things in order to be known and praised for them. In God's sight, that's no different. We all can find ourselves tripped up and ensnared by any kind of evil. So read through that story. But... A central piece of the story is that God eventually sent a man named Moses to deliver the Israelites from their slavery and to usher in their redemption as the people of God. Now, he did so through what may seem like a rather cruel way, but it's cruel because we don't understand the context. You see, God sent, because Pharaoh wouldn't let the Israelites go, he sent upon them a series of hardships, or what your translation might call plagues. Now, the plagues were progressively intensifying. They got worse one after the next. 
And they're rather odd things like frogs and fleas and uh, dead animals. But here's what we're not seeing because we're not in Egypt. What God did is he picked one by one by one by one the gods that the Egyptians worshipped. So they picked the cow god and the river god and the provision through food god. And one after one after one, he showed them, you want to worship that? I'll give it to you. Because that is in fact not God. There is only one God. Now the last plague was by far the worst. On one fateful night, every single firstborn male throughout the entire land of Egypt died. Except for the houses where there was a firstborn that the family followed God's plan of redemption. Now here was God's plan. It's rather odd. Go have a meal. Isn't that cool? You want to be rescued? Eat. God told them, you are to take a lamb, every home, and sacrifice that lamb. And this is weird. I recognize it's weird. I've never seen anybody doing this. But they were to take a brush and go outside and smear some of that blood around the doorpost of the house. Why? Well, so that when death swept over the land that night, it would skip, it would pass over the home where a substitute had already died. And then God told him, you, you also need to eat bread that's unleavened. Have you ever eaten unleavened bread? That's nasty. It is unleavened because the, the yeast hasn't yet risen. Now, what did that mean? Well, God was about to rescue them out of Egypt. And so there was no time for the bread to rise. So they eat it while it was still unleavened. And they were to take bitter herbs and eat those herbs to remind them of the bitterness of their slavery. And they were to do all of this with their carry-on bags packed. Because the next day, as home after home after home woke up to a dead person inside. And there was a collective sense of angst and mourning over the land, including Pharaoh's house. He finally said, you can go. Get out! So God, in his providence, rescued the people of Israel. Now notice that God moved miraculously not for the rich, not for the people in power, not for the educated ones, not for those who had any way to defend themselves. God's rescue plan was to deliver the ones who could not, in fact, do anything to rescue themselves. Why? That's how God works. God is a God for the powerless, for the broken, for the needy. God is not particularly interested in helping those who believe they have no need. 
and who are ever relying on their own effort. And so God rescued them out. Now, if we fast forward from the book of Exodus all the way through the rest of what we call our Old Testament, we find that God's people got together every year to remember that event. And so they would gather as a group and they would walk back through the lamb and the bitter herbs and the bread and they would remember together the seriousness, the amazing, wonderful deliverance of God in getting them out of slavery. And they would ask God, do it again. Rescue us out of present troubles. And so by the time we get to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus walking on the scene. For around 1,450 years, faithful people of God have gotten together and done this every year, over and over and over. Why? Well, because, and you feel free to turn to your neighbor and say this, you are a blockhead. Here's what I mean. You're not actually supposed to do that, especially the spouses, unwise. Friends, it doesn't matter how long you have known Christ. It doesn't matter how long I have known Christ. We are still prone to forget We are still prone to live as though Jesus is not here and he did not die and we need to deal with our own issues on our own strength. And when we do that, we inevitably end back up in sin. And so Jesus gives us this physical, tactile reminder of his death and resurrection because none of us were there. He's given us this tangible means through which to remember what he's done. Isn't that exceedingly kind of him? That as we chew and as we swallow, we get a vivid picture of what sin caused. Jesus chose the annual Passover festival to make his entrance into Jerusalem. So remember I said these 1,400 years, here's what the people did over and over and over. If you read the Gospels closely, when Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem for the last time, knowing that he would, in fact, be hung and die on a cross in just days, he did so at the exact week the Israelites were observing Passover. Why? Because he is the true, the real Passover lamb. God so orchestrated things in such a way that for all time there could be no question, has the sin debt been paid? Because Jesus came at Passover. So what we find on the pages of the New Testament, particularly in Matthew 26, is literally the whole Old Testament being crammed, rammed, packaged into one event. As Jesus in 
brilliant technicolor displays what the whole story of God is about. Now, we're ready to read Matthew 26. Dave Oaks, one of our deacons who works with youth, is dear brother. He's going to come now read for us Matthew 26, 17 through 29. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread And after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins." I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. We thank Dave for reading for us. Do you notice what Jesus did? Jesus took this commemorative Passover meal that had been remembered celebrated, observed for so long, and he offered its fulfillment. See, the story had always been pointing forward to Jesus. Our lives, in fact, in the end, are not about us. We are all caught up in the drama of what God is doing. And so the Israelites, as they had observed this Passover, were unknowingly, perhaps, pointing forward to the ultimate sacrifice for sin, Jesus Christ himself. Jesus used the smaller deliverance from Egypt to point to the final deliverance he was about to win on the cross. You see, the bread and the cup, church, reminds Christians of Jesus' substitution for us. But it wasn't simply a piece of our cattle. 
It wasn't that a livestock was gone. It was that the perfect Son of God, the sinless one, gave himself as the once-for-all sacrifice for sinners. Jesus would be the better Moses. He would lead his people out of slavery. Not the slavery of Egypt, but that slavery out of sin, that we might be free and know God. Jesus would be the better lamb, the life and blood taken from him in order to break people forever, free of sin and death. So brothers and sisters, this morning, church, recall to mind the great grace of God for you, demonstrated at the cross. You need never, ever, ever wonder, does God love you? Because his love was shown in that while we all were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus lived in our place. He died in our place. He rose again in our place. As we sang a few minutes ago, upon a life I have not lived, upon a death I did not die. You see, Jesus lived the perfect life, obeying God in all things, never becoming enslaved to sin like all of us have. And then because of that, he was able to offer himself as the unblemished, perfect sacrifice. But because he's God, then he also was able to rise three days later and demonstrate that that sacrifice had been acceptable to God and never, ever, ever again would there need to be any other substitute. God's people have met their substitute in Jesus Christ. If you've responded to this gospel message, then you've already been delivered, rescued, set free. God's love has been poured out into your heart. You are no longer a slave to sin. You ought not just stare at me quietly when you hear that. You are no longer a slave to sin. Now, friends, when we are rescued by God out of a life of sin and given new right standing with God, brothers and sisters welcomed into his family, does that mean temptation loses its temptationness? No. Is it possible for a Christian to find himself tripped up in porn again? Is it possible for a Christian to be temporarily overrun with bitterness? Yes, it is. But the remedy God has given us to show us that we, in fact, are still free and to lead us back to repentance is the bread and the cup. It's a moment to examine our own hearts and confess any known sin in order that we could be afresh and anew aware of the love of God. Now, if you've disengaged, now's the moment to re-engage. All right? Uh, what does this have to do with the church? 
I mean, isn't the Lord's Supper Jesus and me? I've certainly thought of it that way many, many, many times. Is Chuck getting senile in his old age? That's a legitimate question. Yesterday in the office I was studying and one of the kindergartners in the church came in with some books and I said, come sit up here at the table with me. And she opened up that kid's magazine, Highlights. That thing has been around since bread. It's crazy. And she said, all right, Chuck, you need to find a new shirt and new pants and new shoes. And I said, okay. And she said, now you're going to be that one. And she pointed to the oldest, crustiest person on the page. (laughs) So you can ask this legitimately, is Chuck losing his mind? But in this case, I'm not. Because from Matthew 26 on, what we find is Lord's Supper and local church are in fact infused together. They are not like oil and water. They are like When you make a cup of coffee, you can't undo that. They are of the same substance now. You see, this act of communally taking the bread in the cup, this thing we'll do in a moment, take this little bread and this little bit of juice and observe this together. This is, in fact, down at the very core of what makes church, church. Never, anywhere, in a single verse in the Bible are we told, do this alone. This is not about merely Jesus and me. It's about Jesus and us. You see, when God rescues us out of sin, then he doesn't just leave us alone but rather he places us into a family. Maybe you have a barbecue grill. Now, not the gas kind, the kind with coal. And you got to start it like three days before you actually want to cook something. If you take a piece of coal away from the other coal, what happens? It loses all of its heat. Friends, Christianity is not like golf. It's not something you do alone. This is a team sport. We play it together. Why? Because we need each other. God's design is that we would, in fact, be heaps of coal snuggling together to keep each other warmed in the truth of who God is and what he's done. And we don't get to decide to do that in just any way we want. We haven't been given that freedom. The prescription the doctor has ordered is the bread and the cup. Now, where am I getting all this? Well, let me just show you one place. It'll be on the screens, 1 Corinthians 10, the cup of blessing that we bless. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Now, listen to this verse. Because... Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of one bread. Do you see the logic there? Paul's saying something, frankly, that's rather stunning. He's saying because 
God's people get together and they observe one bread, that by virtue of doing that, they are in fact one people. God has, Christian, given you a family. And because you and I so easily fall into self-deception, we so easily forget Jesus and the daily stuff of life, we hit particular seasons of suffering where we can't seem to hold ourselves up and need brothers and sisters to do so. God has given us a tool by which we remember and recommit together to Christ. That tool is the bread and the cup. As we eat together in a moment, we will be preaching this amazing gospel to each other in a gospel reenactment kind of way. Isn't that amazing? Now, the applications and implications of this are, are many, of which we have time only to mention a few, and I'll just do this in passing. Brothers and sisters, church, we ought to take taking the Lord's Supper as a most wonderful privilege and do so with a solemn manner because this is the strategy God's given us to remember the cross. Later in that same letter of 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote these words, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. What does that mean? This is heavy. He's saying if you are in fact not a believer, then when we pass this bread and cup in a minute, it's not for you. Don't take it. You can't participate in something that's not yet yours. And so let it pass, not because Jesus is mean, but because that's his invitation to you. His invitation is that you would bow to him, turn from sin, trust in Jesus, accept him as the new person in charge, and you'll be immediately let loose, set free, from the bondage that you are in to what is evil. That invitation comes by way of a passing plate. But it's not only non-Christians that shouldn't take this. Paul says it's also anyone else who would take so in an unworthy manner. What does that mean? It means, Christian, you ought to look at your life and see, do I have chronic, significant, unrepentant sin? If so, it doesn't mean I'm not saved. But it does mean the business I need to do with God is not the business of the joy that I'm forgiven, but the work of coming to God and repenting of sin. And so let that pass from you too. And in particular, in the context of 1 Corinthians 11, the church was fighting with each other. There were Some who liked some leader more than others. There were some who gathered around certain people more than others. There were 
people of means who look down on those without. It was gossip. Paul said, you can't celebrate the one blood, the one bread, the one body, if you're living as though you are many. Can you imagine a couple coming to vow renewals and standing and holding each other and pledging again to another 20 years? All the while, they're both sleeping around with others and they know it. That's ridiculous. That's what we do when we allow disunity to spread among the people of God. So let that pass. Now, how do I know that? Look at verse 28. Let a person examine himself then, and so as to eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So the invitation in the Lord's Supper is clearly this. Uh, Church, if you have been set free by Christ, if he substituted himself for you, and you have no known, ongoing, unrepentant sin, then these will come to you in a moment, stacked on top of each other. Take the bread, take the cup, hold it. We'll sing, and then we'll observe together in order to remember not only Jesus' sacrifice for us saving us individually, but him placing us into a new family. But if you're not yet a believer, use this time to ponder the plight of your life. We'd love it if you would come to Christ. And if you're a believer who is not at a place of unity with fellow brothers and sisters, then what you ought to do as we sing is get up and go find that person and resolve the issue. This is the mechanism God has given us. Broken body, shed blood, that we might taste and see that God is good. Would you stand with me? As the friends come now to pass out the 